To make it in cannabis, first you must dare to. 12 years ago, MJ BizCon dared to unite the global cannabis community, igniting a movement that continues to thrive. The wait is over. Let's grow together this November 28th through December 1st in Vegas. You'll hear incredible stories, see groundbreaking innovations, and forge connections you need to thrive in 2024. But wait, the clock is ticking. Get your tickets by September 28th and save up to $200. And here's a secret. Podcast listeners get 10% off with promo code 23POD10. Don't miss out. Get your tickets at mjbizcon.com. That's mjbizcon.com. It's only entertainment. Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Welcome back to the Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst. And today, we're going to be interviewing Jeffrey Garber, founder, CEO of Yellow Dream Farms. Jeffrey, thanks for being with us at the Talking Hedge. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, So what is Yellow Dream Farms? Where are you at? What is it? So Yellow Dream Farm is a family-owned... 30,000 square foot cultivation facility based in Adelanto, California. It's about an hour and a half north of Los Angeles. And Yellow Dreams Farm model is to grow boutique quality cannabis at scale using vertical farming and LED technology. And we are growing, you know, boutique quality cannabis at scale. And we're trying to kind of break the barrier and the stigma that, you know, boutique quality and craft cannabis can't be grown in commercial scale. You know, I was funny because I was just thinking that yesterday. <laughs> I was just thinking like, I'm not sure that it can be done. Um, so that'll be an interesting conversation to dive into. I, I was in Vegas just a couple of weeks ago and I got to stop by around um, eight stores. Eight or, I was trying to go into 10, but I, I ran out of time. <clears throat> and I noticed <clears throat> I, I got to cookie store. Kind of excited to to try some of Burner's genetics that I've heard so much about. And yet this $55 blunt was nothing I would ever pay more than 15 bucks here in Seattle for. I, I pay, it's $18 and then I get a discount uh, at the store and I, I buy, it's the three and a half grams, not the two grams I bought from, from Cookie. Right. So um, kind of a, a trash experience. I went to the 20 stores on 420. Was that just two days ago? Uh, in Seattle, uh, I do that the sixth year in a row and kind of avoided the whole cookie story there too. Um, and I'm, so there's a lot of, of noise about the genetics coming out of cookies and, and these international expansions coming out of California and this global transition of, of big cannabis and, and his and Berner's whole push of where we've got, you know, the genetics and the consistency. And yet I didn't, I didn't see it. So I, I kind of was under the impression that that was something that was really important to him. And yet when it came down to it, wasn't quite there. So do you have any opinions about like that big brand coming from, you know, your state going international, claiming the same thing, but not really following through? Um, listen, I'll never talk badly on, on burner and cookies. You know, they're some of the biggest influences to me personally in the game. Um, but I'm really happy you touched on, the price point of their products and something that I kind of pride myself and my brand on is that I'm really looking to give access to people like yourself and other, you know, cannabis kind of source who really love a high-end product, but they don't want to go into a dispensary and drop 50, 80, 90 bucks on an eighth every time they go in. 
it's unaffordable and it's unsustainable. And at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't really cost, you know, that much at the end. And it always falls, you know, when there's so many middlemen in between, when you're contracting out bros and when you're sourcing genetics and when you're, you know, dis not distributing for yourself. So there's really just so many different, you know, touch points there that really make it unaffordable to the consumer as opposed to, you know, growing it yourself and, you know, not licensing out your name to a lot of other cultivators. Uh, so, you know, we pride ourselves on really just getting an affordable quality product to the market and keeping it at a sustainable cost. And, you know, hopefully people, you know, value the value of the brand by, you know, smoking an $80 eighth and then smoking a 40 to $50 eighth of good, good, and then kind of matching up the potency, matching up the terpene profiles, matching up the actual effect that you get, you know, putting statistics aside, you know, how does this product make you feel? What kind of high are you getting from it? Is it a heady? Is it body high? Is it something that you can smoke again and feel like this is something consistent for you? So that's really kind of where my mission comes in is to just bring an affordable product to market. And that's kind of why all of my sustainability aspects of Yellow Dream Farm really fall into play is, you know, we're LED growing vertical. Um, you know, we have a thousand light facility. Um, you know, our sustainable and eco-friendly practices also not only give back to the environment, but they keep our cogs down. And when you keep your cogs down, and as we all know, California's marketplace is incredibly volatile. Um, you know, people aren't getting these 2,500, 3,000 pounds anymore. You know, the wholesale market is pretty much in the dump. You know, it's oversaturated with a lot of different brands coming to market because of the oversupply of flour in the market. So it's really just become a very, very competitive edge that you need to have. And for me, my competitive edge was to always try to keep my costs down. And that's why I chose to go the route of growing vertical. And, you know, it's been pretty successful. Obviously, there's a lot more hiccups down the way and a lot more learning experiences because it's a, it's a newfound style of growing. And it's something that we're very proud that we jumped into. What are the wholesale prices right now, Jeffrey? Um, you mentioned that they're kind of coming down. Where are they at now? Um, right now, you know, it's, it's mid April, May, you know, usually, you know, the outdoor crops are drying out by now. That's obviously a big aspect of why the market is being saturated. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of depths, a lot of outdoor humble grown farms, you know, come in and that kind of drives the price down. So usually there's, there's always kind of a market trend that happens in the industry where, you know, the price always dips, you know, during Croptober when, you know, all of the Northern product starts coming down. So, but, you know, even still then, you know, we've seen prices go as low as, you know, 800 to 1200 in the indoor market and, you know, three, four, 500, you know, in the outdoor light dead market. And, you know, when your cost of produce is, you know, between 550 and 800 a pound, you know, there's no profit margin. Mm -hmm. and then you have $162 tax, you know, on a pound that's cost you $600 to produce. That's an insane number. And now you have over license, oversupply, you know, and not enough retail outlets in the state of California to even sustain the amount of product that's going into the marketplace. And now, you know, you have farmers who are scrambling, they're dumping product just to get rid of it. They still have the tax liability on their books. So it's just, you know, you, it's incredibly competitive and it's just, you know, becoming unsustainable for a lot of farmers. And that's why you see a lot of California natives and you know, California farmers, you know, going to states like Florida and more business friendly environments where they're going to get incentives to come to the state, where they're not going to have power restrictions. You know, you can barely get licensed and powered, even if you 
they'll issue a license. And then all of a sudden you find out, you know, Edison's not going to give you power for two years. Now you have farmers paying crazy rent. They're paying licensing fees. They're paying renewal fees and they can't even grow a pound yet. So, you know, it's just, there's a ton, a ton of hiccups in, you know, different types of, you know, legislation that's kind of hurting the California market. I, I would say, you know, there's been a outcry of, you know, lowering taxes somehow was raised $10 a pound this year. So as no one's really understanding where the correlation comes and we're just, you know, once again, uphill battle constantly in the cannabis industry and it doesn't seem to be getting any easier for anybody. Yeah. I mean, between fires and robberies and taxes and competition and, and regulators and everything else, it, it's um, a really fun environment, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious how you're able to remain a going concern in that environment. So vertical integrated agriculture, you're growing straight up, right? Is that what you mean? You're not, not just vertically integrated as a producer, processor, retailer, but you have literally vertical grow. How is that helping you reduce your cogs? So maximizing your square footage is the main aspect of it. So, you know, an average room that isn't double stacked, you know, let's say ours has 162 lights, each room of our seven flower rooms, an average room would be 80 pounds. I mean, 80 lights for that same 2000 square feet. So now I have 162 lights and, you know, with now you have so many breakthroughs with LED tech, you know, only in the last three years with LED technology really being utilized in large scale uh, cultivation, uh, mainly because of the spectrum. Um, and now also you have a lot of different automation systems. You have a lot of different irrigation mm-hmm. systems. You have environmental control systems that really help you hone in on the microclimates, which is a big aspect. So a lot I think has to do with just, you know, the breakthroughs in technology, the amount of funding that a lot of these big companies are getting from, you know, outside agricultural communities who are coming in and investing into the cannabis industry because they see how lucrative it is. So I think there's a lot of, you know, different software and techs that, you know, we have partnered with, you know, like Growlink, you know, they do a fantastic job with, you know, fully automation in our facility. This obviously helps with our our costs. Expand on that. uh, um, through Growlink. I'd like, I'd really like to know about the automation and what you're using. I went to planet 13 in Vegas. They have, you know, just arms and stuff and this huge long line of, of equipment and it's not fully automated, but it's a lot of expense. So I'm wondering what you've incorporated to help reduce your cost of goods sold by implementing automation and anything else that you're doing that might be unique or early on to the game for cannabis. What are you doing specifically for automation? Um, so from automation, from our feeding systems to our batch tanks, to our full irrigation room is fully automated. Um, you know, none of my fertigation techs have to fill a batch tank. You know, they're just checking the lines and checking pH, checking EC all through a computer or an app system. And then, you know, all of our tanks are re- being refilled automatically. Um, obviously the irrigation, you know, we're not hand feeding anything when you have, you know, 3000 plants on average per room. And then you have your environmental control where you're really setting and dialing in parameters. Uh, so you can really focus in on the microclimates in the vertical system, because obviously when you have ceiling heights of 20 feet, as opposed to 10 feet, mm-hmm. you know, your dry back on the top tier versus the bottom tier is a little heavier. Um, well, you can't, you can't see that top tier either. So are you utilizing cameras and AI, or do you know when that technology will be available? So if you see it, a leaf we have walking platforms, so, okay. um, so you can't see it. 
Yeah, but do you so know, like do you happen to have a time frame of when you might see a technology similar to a camera detecting whether or not it's environmental factors or something like, uh, you know, the, the soil composition or whatever and why that leaf might be changing color or otherwise? So Growlink provides all of that as is. Um, it's something that's currently being utilized. Um, you know, there's several companies that do it. So there's, we have media sensors, media sensors plugged directly into our soil or our hydro cube, our Rockwell cubes. Mm -hmm. And this tells you the water content, the water temperature, the EC, and then you can always, you know, check the runoff to match that up. So our media sensors actually connect back to our solenoids and the solenoid is what opens and closes the valves in order to feed the plants. So we can actually manage our dryback when any plant falls below 25% dryback. We can automatically sensor our solenoid to open up without any of my employees having to micromanage and sit and live on the app and look and see, you know, hey, this plant's drying back, boom, right away. The computer knows, it triggers the fertigation room, and then all of a sudden you're feeding, you know, as opposed to people going into a room plugging sensors into every one of the plants, checking it, okay, dry back is at appropriate height, boom, click the button to feed. So we've created this automation where you really set the parameters, you dial in the plans, you know, you know what EC works well for it, what dry back works well for it. And then, you know, we kind of just continue, continue dialing that aspect to kind of get that perfect dry back. And, you know, that allows us to really, you know, get that quality of flower that, you know, a lot of people are utilizing. And this is all through a method called crop steering. Um, crop steering is, you know, what most people are utilizing right now to really boost uh, yields and boost quality. Hmm. And this is a proven method that, you know, most guys, most cultivators who are, you know, ahead of the time right now that are really utilizing this type of technology. How much does medium play into creating top shelf? Like where you really get that funk and the, the, the terpenes really fall through? Is it, is it a matter of soil or hydroponics, aeroponics? Is it the flush that really creates that, that smell and taste and, and distinguishable, uh, you know, discerning palate for those that, that want something good? What is it? Explain to me a little bit about kind of what creates top shelf. Um, when it comes to your media, I mean, a lot of people say soil is what brings out the biggest terpene profiles from it. I ran in this specific facility, both Rockwell and soil and played around with it, you know, in terms of being more efficient, you know, Rockwell has always been the easier route. Uh, but you know, soil, it's just, I, it's just really such a difficult question because it's so personal preference, mm -hmm. not only to your growing style and your growing techniques, you know, soil is a little more resilient as opposed to co of uh, hydro or Rockwell. So it's just really how you grew up and what style of growing, you know, I think is what you've worked around and perfected. And, you know, everyone's got a personal preference, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's just like telling me, you know, what coffee beans are stronger, you know, it could be from Peru or it could be from, you know, Seattle. <laughs> so it's yeah. just, it's, I think it's very personal preference based on, but, you know, I think industry, a lot of people say soil is definitely where you get the most terpene profiles from. Um, well, let me ask you a different way. In Seattle on Third Avenue by the courthouse, there's always a group of, of folks, um, maybe different people, whatever, but they always have like the best smelling bud in the whole city like if you want to know what really good seattle weed smells like go to third avenue at the bus stop right across from the courthouse 
consistently okay. like the best smelling. I always want to go up and, and just like sesh with them because I want to know what they're smoking and it smells delicious. When I ask people, how is it that those folks always have what smells like the best weed in the entire state? The response is, well, it's probably craft grow. And that goes in opposition to what you're saying is that you can kind of create that on a larger scale. What people are telling me is now nah, it, it smells that good because it's got to be small farms. How do you get that experience where you have that smell and the, um, you know, assuming that there's flavor behind it, how do you get that on a large scale? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is genetic based, um, but also the curing process is a huge aspect of it. You know, a lot of farmers are, are rushing product out the door to meet deadlines, um, you know, to get the product in the hands of the consumer. And, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, the slow process is the winning process in, in my experience. And sometimes, you know, we, the way we cure and the way we trim and just taking that extra day for the product to really sit and kind of marinate, I think is a huge aspect of my curing process. And mm. I think it's just such a shame that after you know, 90 days of hard work, you know, to kind of skip the last step of it of, you know, the real curing process of really letting the product sit, whether it's in a cure tube or a barrel or in a bag where you're burping it. And, you know, it's just, it's just something that we, I pride myself on. I think having a strong nose is something that is really appealing to most consumers and making sure that the product is still stays fresh. So it's a very fine line, honestly, to get it to cure, but without it drying out too quick and, you know, getting all that moisture loss. Is is there a conspiracy that people are, are um, I don't know what the process is called, but keefing it, you know, like getting some of the, the trichomes and, and keef off of it in order to sell that as another product. And then that would maybe diminish the the smell and, and flavor and, and attributes. Um, I think so. I mean, like I said, it, California is very adamant at very high THC testing. It's, I don't know why the consumers are, are going crazy on very high THC testing uh, product as opposed to aesthetics or quality or nose or mm -hmm. effect, you know, as me as a consumer, high THC testing is not like something that I ever look for. I'm more of, you know, a genetic guy. I'm more of an aesthetic guy. I'm more of a flavor profile guy. And as well as what kind of effect, you know, you can get on it. You know, I'm, I'm an active user. So for me, I don't like to get blitzed. I like to just, mm -hmm. you know, get that little maintenance high going and really be productive. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's very complicated. I think cannabis consumers are probably one of the hardest consumers to understand and their consumer behavior is like very tough to really pinpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think they just love authenticity and they love, you know, a real product and someone that's going to give you that consistent product day in and day out. And, um, I think that's really important. A lot of people are asking for a highest THC at the um, you know lowest price point, and they don't understand how terpenes are the actual direction there. So I think the majority of exactly. people everywhere are in the same boat. But talking about consistency, uh, Blue Dream is interesting because that was a, a strain that everybody really liked because of that kind of you know early on that had a euphoric, energetic, uplifting experience. Um, mm -hmm. And and now that phenotype, I even saw a, an indica blue dream so people are just taking it and crossing it uh, and changing it uh I, i'm curious like when when you're talking about consistency and, and developing something that people can go after time and time again um how do you how do you how do you do that because the f1 like once you start with that isn't it all downhill from there i mean if somebody wants the can like a, a 
a Acapulco Gold or um, White Widow or, you know, something some old school. How do you keep that consistent when you call it medicine or, or, you know, when you want the same thing over and I want my Coca-Cola, I don't drink Coca-Cola, but if you want your same thing over and over again, how do you do that? You know, it's very tough, especially in the cannabis industry, because, you know, growers, you know, run after run, you can have the same strain, same lineage, same genetic, and it just from one room to another room, it looks completely different. Hmm. And the way you do that is just really dialing in your feeding and dialing in your environment and knowing that like perfect point where you get that perfect run and where the product looks consistently and consistently the same. And it takes just, you know, a lot of data. It just run after run to analyze this information to how to get that whole room to look consistently with the same testing, same terpene profile, same cure. You know, at the end of the day, you're dealing with a live plant. You're dealing with a live environment. You know, accidents happen, hiccups happen, dehues go out, ACs go out, uh, lines get clogged. So there's always something that you're dealing with. And, you know, it's just being able to pivot on the dime and, you know, preventative maintenance, I think is a huge aspect of cannabis um, and being, you know, being in cultivation is just, you know, knowing at any point something can happen. So how do you pivot? How do you counteract and just, you know, continue, you know, rolling with the punches as a lot of people say. Mm -hmm. In terms of reducing your cost of goods sold and keeping up with, uh, you know, premium cannabis, how important is it to have distribution? There's a lot of athletes coming out with brands, whether it's CBD or THC, and it doesn't really seem to matter. Willie Nelson had to leave Washington State. Nobody cares. <clears throat> and I don't think people care about uh, Burner either. They care about cookies. That's my opinion. Um, how important is it, though, for distribution? Because you can have your athletic brand, you know, and, and your spokesperson. But if there's not a solid distribution, you're not really going to get any sales. In the fifth largest economy in the world being California, how important is it for you to have a solid distribution channel? So we self-distribute all our products um, internally. We have our own sales team. So we don't use any third-party distributions. Um, but distribution is obviously one of the most important aspects of it. If people don't know your product, if people can't get access to your product, you know, what good is it as having the top tier, you know, product. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, distribution is everything, you know, sales and marketing. And I think, you know, one of the most important aspects is having your cultivation team and your sales team and your operational team all kind of come in and understand where the market is going, understand the trends in the industry. So we can consistently not skip a step. Because, you know, it's, this industry is just like fashion. What's hot today isn't going to be hot tomorrow. And you always kind of have to continue working with what trends are hot, you know, whether it's OGs or gelatos or blue dreams or now sativas, you know. So there's just so many different trends in the marketplace that you really need to stay ahead of. And your sales team needs to really, you know, coordinate that with your cultivation team, making sure you're putting the right products out into the market and putting those products out in the right time of year. You know, like I said, there's trends in every industry and cannabis is no different. You know, what people want to smoke during the summer isn't exactly what they want to smoke during the winter. And when you can understand those trends and provide products to your retailers uh, around that, then all of a sudden people kind of have a triggering, you know, feeling, you know, summertime, let me go get some of this good, good. Or, you know, wintertime, I'm staying home. You know, let me get some of this kind of good, good. And I think these kind of interactions with the products, you know, allows people to really gain that kind of brand loyalty where they're, you know, connecting good, good with a part of their life. Mm -hmm. What are some other trends coming out of California? Cause we typically see 
California leading the trends. It hits, you know, sure. Denver maybe six months later, and a few months after that, it hits the Northwest here. So you guys are always uh, leading the trends. Um, what are you kind of seeing right now as as trend setting? Uh, from a from a strains or just just anything in the industry, anything in general. I think just really exotic looking flower, something new, something fresh, you know, something with, you know, purple aspects to it. Anything with a purple color really usually sells well. Mm. And I think just getting something that's not oversaturated in the market um, and creating a trend behind it, I think with the right marketing, you know, Burner does it himself, you know, better than anyone out there. Whatever he puts in the market, you know, people buy and people love. Mm. And it's usually of the highest quality flower, but he, he creates... You know, he creates a really good marketing campaign behind it. And he's always putting new products in the market. And he's always, you know, collaborating with, you know, some of the best breeders in the country. And, you know, people now understand that, you know, it's a very competitive edge and good flower doesn't sell itself anymore. You really have to have, like you mentioned, whether it's a celebrity or, you know, just a good marketing team and a good sales team who's really going to describe and sell your product appropriately to, you know, whoever your demographic is. I think is like one of the most important aspects, even in the retailers, you know, these guys will take your products, but they're not going to push your product unless, you know, you really hook up the butt tenders or really give them something that they can stand behind. And really, you know, I think buy-in is a huge aspect of where the trends in. If you can get the consumer to buy into your brand and into your products and then them trust your opinion on what you think is good in the marketplace, that's how you create the trends and getting that loyalty you know, getting that buy-in and then all of a sudden people say, whatever, you know, good goods always putting in that fire. So when I release that new strain, they're already going to have, you know, the motivation to go out and buy it because they know that, you know, the, everything else that I put out has been consistent and quality and most importantly, affordable. Mm-hmm. Are you worried at all about direct sales or have you been taking advantage of that in California? What do you mean direct sales? Direct to consumer bypassing the retail market. Uh, um, no, I think um, so. One of our biggest end goals is direct to consumer through delivery, and so that's you know really where we see ourselves expanding the most. Is you know we are creating a delivery platform where we're going to be delivering direct to consumer straight from our distribution and a couple other distribution hubs that we have across the state. So I, th- I think it's a huge aspect. I think you know the instant needs category not just in cannabis, but in, in foods and you know, Postmates and Uber Eats and GoPuffs, you know, these are some of the biggest tech companies in the world and they're all falling the instant needs category. And with obviously COVID in the past two years, you know, people want to have, you know, everything delivered to their doors. Not everyone wants to go out. And now you have different AR and NFT experiences where you can get directly from your phone or computer that really kind of create that engagement with the consumer so I think it's going to be a huge, huge aspect of the cannabis industry. You know, only as of, I believe, August of September, you were even allowed to put a cannabis delivery app onto the app store. They didn't allow it. So now you're going to have, you know, huge, huge rush, you know, go-to-market strategies for a lot of big boys, you know, Ease and Brass Store and High Times, you know, these are all deliveries that are, you know, rushing to create a platform. And I think, you know, it's going to be, you're going to see a huge, huge increase and sales due to that. And I think it's just going to be, you know, access to more consumers, which, you know, everyone can really use right now. Because, you know, like, as I mentioned, retailers, there's not enough retailers in the state of California. 
the state is not issued enough retail licenses to sustain the amount of product that's being cultivated in the state. So we desperately need more outlets. And if we can get delivery cars on the road and deliver it straight to the consumer, I think that will help boost sales and help, you know, farmers get their products in the hands of, you know, the consumer as opposed to, you know, potentially having to even think about, you know, selling it on a wholesale or even on a black market, which a lot of farmers, you know, are struggling to, to make bank. You know, the black market, as everyone knows, is huge, huge still in California in itself. After, you know, two, three, four, five years of legalization, you're still seeing black market sales uh, overtake legal cannabis sales, which is, to me, just mind-blowing. I, I still don't understand how it's happening and how, you know, with the amount of tax revenue that the state or the country is producing, how there's not money being allocated to more funds and more enforcement on the black market community. And this is what's really taken down the, you know, a lot of even the retailers. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot that can be discussed on, on that aspect. Yeah, I recently had a, a licensed entity in Washington State offer me eighteen hundred and fifty dollars for a pound, um, which is which is fairly pricey up here, especially on on a you know, black market. Yeah. I mean, uh, for for folks that um, you know are, are looking to grow from home, is that a market that you're worried is going to take any market share away from you? Grow from home? Yeah, home grow. Well, if you home grow, you can only. I mean. Yes and no. I think, you know, I think it'll always be a hobby and a hobby that a lot of people love and enjoy, you know, to grow and smoke your own weed is great. But I think if you're a consumer and even if you make your own craft beer at home, you still have that kind of curiosity to see, you know, you know what's this like? You know, let me try this, you know, even to compete against yourself sometimes to see, you know, you may think that you have a great product, but unless you're going out there, you know, I have access to all the weed in the world and, you know, I hate spending money on flour, but I still have such a curiosity to see what other people are putting into the marketplace. So I'm always going and checking out new drops and stopping by retailers to see what the competition's putting out there and really just trying everything that I can. Cause you know, I, I'm very, I have that curiosity to learn and, and see and, and feel. So I think a lot of avid consumers have that same curiosity. Do you have any advice for people growing from home on how to cure and it seems like that's kind of the, the secret sauce almost to bring out some of the, the flavor and, and, and taste and funk. What, what kind of advice do you have on curing? Um, you know, it's just don't bag it up when it's too wet and then burp it. You know, you have to really open and close those bags, allow fresh oxygen to come in, get the old oxygen to come out and just rip it, step and repeat. You know, that's, that's what I do. And, you know, it's, it's a little extra, we have something called cure tubes. They're like big barrels, you know, that we hang in a wine cellar type room uh, where we have full environmental control in our curing room as well, which is a huge aspect. You want to make sure that you're sitting, you know, not too humid, not too dry. So the product, you know, moisture loss is obviously a huge effect on it, you know, and every gram counts these days. So when you're, you use, use, when you're wasting time curing, you're technically losing moisture on the product. Technically, you're losing grams. A lot of people, farmers take that into consideration when they're curing their product. Um, So that's, you know, it's just everyone really has their own mindset. And, you know, sometimes you can't change it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think curing is probably one of the most important aspects and the flesh, of course. Mm -hmm. You can't do one without the other. Yeah. Do you think people are going to be into uh, business integrated agriculture, you know, where you walk in and it helps to reduce some of the, 
the CO2 and, and you know, the need for um, AC. Also, you know, you might be able to have a wall of, of herbs or whatever. Are you kind of seeing that trend? Or I'm, I'm just curious about the, the connection between vertically integrated agriculture and business integrated agriculture, where businesses are going to use, you know, regular plants uh, within their facilities as well. Uh, do you kind of see any correlation at all or am I, am I off on a limb? What do you mean like other agricultures using vertical farming? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if this is going to catch on because I've been talking about vertical integrated agriculture on my podcast for like four years. And I'm curious if this is finally going to be this next stage where we're going to walk into a, a business and they're going to use a plant wall to reduce their their um, AC Um or, you know, maybe a restaurant is going to have a plant wall for, for herb garden. Do you think that you know, businesses are going to integrate agriculture, um, you know, in, in like a bank or, or anything? Do you, do you kind of see this trend catching on? I mean, I think vertical farming is, you know, if anything, I think cannabis took this trend from, let's say, like lettuce farmers or other agricultural communities, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, you know, f- Farm to table, you know, it's a huge, huge thing. Everyone wants, you know, their food farm to table these days, especially in California. Mm-hmm. They want to grow it in gardens and they want to grow locally and they want to, you know, help the community sustain itself. And I think a lot of that has to do with vertical farming is when, you know, you don't need hundreds of acres to grow lettuce or to grow corn. Mm-hmm. And now you can grow lettuce indoors through LED technology and you go to these lettuce farms that I've personally been to, uh, ones in, I believe, New Jersey, and they source half of Manhattan through a vertical lettuce farm in uh, New Jersey. And they're able to keep costs down. They keep their delivery costs down because they're not shipping products. And the supermarkets and the local uh, you know, farmers markets are all now getting high quality, fresh product, products to their marketplace you know, without having to go through all these deliveries. And that's why, you know, vertical farming is great because you can utilize efficiencies, but you can also utilize less square footage and have the same output. So you're not only saving on rent, you know, you're saving on, because most farmers were growing this way. Mm -hmm. So now 30,000 square feet, you need 60,000 square feet, as opposed to doing stack on top of stack. I've already had the ceiling height that I'm not utilizing, like in New York City, like almost air rights, you Mm -hmm. know? So I think it's something that people weren't utilizing because the tech was not available to the community. And now that the technology is available and more so continuously being invested in that farmers are now understanding, I didn't have the tech to to grow this way. And that's why it wasn't successful. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, we're pushing the envelope a little further. And like I said, a lot of outside investment are coming from a lot of different tech companies, a lot of different agricultural communities, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're investing in cannabis, you know, just like during the gold rush. The guy, you know, with the shovel was the one making all the money. These guys are coming in with different softwares, task managements, POS systems, you know, and these guys are getting billion dollar evaluations in the first year or two because they didn't have a specific POS for cannabis. They didn't have a specific accounting for cannabis. They didn't have a specific uh, task management software for cannabis. You know, when you're managing in my specific space, I have 30,000 plants in house at any given time, including clone veg, moms, and all my flower rooms. I need to have information on every one of these plants, you know, and how do you do that? You have to have specific cannabis softwares to utilize that. So it's just from all aspects of non-cannabis touching assets to cannabis touching assets, to grow lights, environmental feeding controls, 
just so much has really came into the marketplace that, you know, I think everyone is realizing you have to utilize these tools to be successful these days. Mm-hmm. That's something that I always believed in and kind of, you know, as, a, as, you know, a lot of legacy growers, you know, don't believe, you know, they see everything with their eyes and their feel and their touch, but, you know, at such a large scale commercial agriculture, you can't, you know, get a feel for every plant unless you have sensors and like you said, different AI, I think will definitely come into the marketplace. If you see a, a leaf curling or if you're seeing a little yellowing, they'll catch on to that. So I, I love it. And I can't wait for someone to come connect and, and do it. I'm sure someone's already, you know, listening to this and thinking about it if it's not already created. And, you know, I think the more people who can come in and bring other technologies into the industry will only help push cannabis in the right direction. And we need to continue, you know, sharing the knowledge that we've kind of grown. Um, you know, a lot of people like to, you know, keep their knowledge to themselves. But, you know, how are you going to push an industry forward if you're keeping everything you've learned to yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, maybe it'll help benefit you, but, you know, there's a bigger picture involved. There's a bigger community involved. You know, there's besides recreational use, you know, the medical use of cannabis is, I think, the biggest advocate of it all. And, you know, it's been proven over and over again on the medical benefits from, ADD or back pains or creams or migraines and people who cite, you know, Alzheimer's, I think, you know, the list goes on and on and it still doesn't get the credibility it deserves. And it's still a schedule one and it's still, you know, especially with 280E, you know, farmers can't even survive because they can barely write off any of their business expenses due to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always just needs more people advocating and just people talking about it, I think is a big will we'll go a long way. And that's why I love. There's a lot of issues with cannabis. I guess it depends on how long you want to keep putting up with it. Do you have a particular time frame? Like, do you have an exit strategy for this? Or are you going to just keep doing it until the wheels fall off? No, I mean, hopefully, you know, just, I'd say a five-year plans in place. You know, our goal is to expand our footprint in California as I mentioned, through our vertical model of direct-to-consumer through delivery and retail, and then to grow our footprint through a multi-state operation, and then hopefully, you know, have big enough infrastructure where you will attract those MSOs to come in and take a look at yourself and see if that's something that they're willing to buy into. And hopefully I can continue being a part of that as that happens, or, you know, we can exit. But, you know, I see myself in the cannabis industry for a while, whether it's in cultivation or other aspects of it. Um, but, you know, cultivation has always been a passion and a hobby of mine and something that, you know, I, I love spending time in my grow rooms, you know, just as, you know, much as I have to spend time in accounting and compliance and distribution and operations. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's been an amazing experience. It's, you know, pure joy and passion for me. But, you know, it, it, there's a lot of struggles and a lot of uphill battles that you have to kind of just continue fighting against. And, you know, like any industry, you know, there's no secret to success besides hard work and, you know, just grinding. It is a grind. Um, for any investors <clears throat> or anybody that wants to check out where you're at, what's the website, social media? Where is Yellow Dream Farms at? So you can look us up at yellowdreamfarm.com. You can look us up on LinkedIn. Um, our house brand is called Good Good. That's our direct-to-consumer. Yellow Dream Farm is more of a B2B platform. Um, we offer white labeling services. We offer packaging services. We offer distribution for brands who don't have cultivation licenses and are looking to get into the marketplace. 
Uh, so we're currently white labeling with two partners of ours who we package and sell them our products and they put it under their brands. And then, you know, we have Good Good, which is our first house brand that we launched and I found it as well. And that's our, you know, direct to consumer. That's what we sell in the retails and deliveries and something that we've really been gaining good traction behind. And, you know, I hope we continue to gain market share and expand our footprint and then hopefully develop a color other brands that will be more targeted to other demographics of people as opposed to good, good, which is more, you know, cannabis connoisseurs. People are a little more, as you said, into the marketing and the hype and just really are looking for new trendy products. You know, I'm really about building a community where people can come together and discuss, you know, aspects in the industry, whether it is, you know, on the legislation side or just the community and the cultural aspects of it. You know, the, the whole community and the culture of cannabis has grown so far. And, uh, you know, uh, potheads have gone to having negative connotations, the positive connotations to being some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the country. And, you know, I just, it's, it's beautiful to see. And, you know, I, and that's what I'm saying. Just, you know, we got to continue working together, share knowledge, share information, and, you know, come together to push the industry towards the right direction. Hmm. All right. We'll put uh, Jeffrey's link uh, um his LinkedIn contact in the in the description, but I think with that, we're going to have to roll this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Jeffrey Garber. He is the founder, CEO, Yellow Dream Farms. Uh, he's also with Good Good. Um, Jeffrey, thanks again for being with us on the Talking Hedge. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is the Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.